Hi, this is John Ottman. I was the uh, composer and the editor on the film. Not necessarily that order. Um, I'll try to keep this interesting without sounding like a robot. The, uh, now that we're in the opening title sequence, I'll just jump right ahead and, uh, and say uh, what first comes to mind, and that is uh, I'm a huge believer in, in title sequences for films, and I really feel like they, they sort of set the audience in, in, in the mood that they're that, uh, in the proper mood of what they're going to see, and it settles them down, and, it, and for some reason it just, to me, thematically is the right thing to do. You can establish musically um, the pastiche of the movie and, and establish a theme that you're going to refer to later in the film and tell your musical story. And, um, of course, we had no budget to do a main title sequence, so what I did is I found some uh, extra footage of uh, panning water that um, had been done when they were shooting the boat sequence in San Pedro. And um, Tom had obviously, the DP had obviously seen the, the ripples in the water and the lights and wanted to shoot it. But it wasn't quite enough, so um, they were still shooting that sequence. So I had them had them shoot some more of that panning, but it still wasn't quite long enough. So I ended up uh, looping it two or three times and creating this sequence. But you can you can tell sometimes the water repeats. But it's sort of a really low budget way of creating this elegance of this opening that we really wanted to tell the audience this is not going to be what you expect. Um, and I think the water and the title sequence had a lot to do with that in combination with the music um, and this sort of. Uh, piece of music I had actually started writing before seeing the water, it just fit like a glove over the rippling water because of the uh, sort of uh, um, uh, element in the strings. And uh, the funny thing about that is I had written that so early on, but when we did test, uh, when we did screenings of the film for executives, we wanted the score to sound better than my horrible synthesized renderings. So we ended up putting in Basic Instinct because it sounded most like the theme I'd written. Um, many people think that my theme was an answer to Temping with Basic Instinct, but it was really, for the record, the opposite. <laughs> but, um, but I was really glad to have the sequence because it did establish the, uh, the feeling we wanted in the film and um, confused some of the executives, I'll have to say, when we showed this film to them for the first time. They sat me and Brian down. I remember one day outside at a, table, at a, at a park bench table and said, look, um, we were expecting the score to be a lot more hip than what you've tempted it with. And, and Brian and I looked at each other, and I'll never forget this, and we at the same time said, good, because that's what it's not going to be. Because um, a lot of the fear was that um, we thought people would see this movie as an answer to Pulp Fiction, like we quickly slapped this thing together to ride on that bandwagon. But what no one really knew is that we were filming Usual Suspects at the same time, at the same time or before uh, Pulp Fiction was filming. It's just that our film stayed in the can for a year before it was released. Um, so this was not an answer at all to Pulp Fiction, it was just its own unique movie, and I thought that, that, that by making this score completely different from what you would think and making the film a lot more romantic and, and um, elegant, that um, it would separate it immediately. This scene is really interesting because uh, most people don't really ask, why does he ask what time it is? And the reason is, is because the um, whole explosion of the boat used to be a whole different story storyline, which uh, I ended up cutting out of the film. Um, it used to be that Keaton laid a bomb in the boat to destroy it, and he knew that the boat was going to explode very soon. So, uh, uh, therefore, he asks, what time is it? Because he knows that uh, even though he's crippled here hopelessly, that um, Kaiser Soze is about to die anyway. Um, but uh, we changed the storyline, and uh, we ended up doing uh, some pickup shots in Brian's backyard 
Um, and uh, when we get there, I'll show you the, uh, the Bart Brian might have brought this up, but the foot of Kaiser Soze is uh, Brian and the, the hand dropping the match is my hand. And uh, we did this uh, so that the ship exploded just as a happenstance of the fire as opposed to uh, another subplot. And uh, Brian, never knowing, knowing exactly what I'm going to be, do, be doing in the editing room, always covers himself and will do weird things. And people on the set may ask, uh, well, there's my hand right there and Brian's foot uh, in his backyard. He'll shoot things, and um, sometimes I'll use them and sometimes I won't. But he did a shot of Gabriel Byrne um, in the Pedora hat shooting. And um, it really worked out well in the montage in the end of the film to make the point that perhaps he is Kaiser Soze. Uh, one of the great things about being the editor and the composer and uh, with the director who understands the use of music in movies is that um, the score uh, is mixed correctly, <laughs> meaning that uh, even after, after, uh, in that last explosion, you can actually hear the score over the explosion, which is unique in films today. Um, Brian's point of view and mine is if the, if the music is working uh, in the movie, then uh, anything else should take second seat to it. And if it's a sound effect sequence, then there shouldn't be music. Um, sometimes there are exceptions, of course, but um, music is off, usually offering an emotional uh, sinew for the movie, and to keep interrupting that with sound effects uh, makes the film less strong. These scenes were, I mean, always uh, things are always a little longer than, than uh, they end up being, at least with me. <laughs> I, I tend to cut a lot, and, um, you know, the... The bottom line here was to keep the film moving and, 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 base, and get the idea across that uh, these suspects are being lined up or arrested and, in an economic way. And um, we had actually interrupted this whole sequence by then going into a restaurant scene with, with Edie and Keaton. And um, we decided it, it, it just disturbed the whole pace of the arrest. So we cut it out and um, came into it midstream. And that's one of the deleted scenes that which I'll, we can talk about later. I really felt uninhibited doing this movie because when we set out to do the film, we, we really had no idea, you know, what was going to happen to it. I just saw it as a glorified student movie that we were doing, just like we'd always done. And I didn't really know who any of these actors were because I don't really see that many films, and so I was able to treat them like characters without being intimidated by the persona of who the actors were. And in that regard, I felt really uninhibited in the editing room. We would try things. Because I saw this as, you know, this was an independent movie and we could do things that normally a student a studio may scoff at. So I, I would just, um, you know, do things for the sake of doing them, knowing I could always undo them. And uh, jump cuts were, were something that I decided to do a lot to give it uh, pace, but also to make it interesting. Um, but there's a fine line about going overboard with jump cuts and, and, and being overly stylistic over the content. Um, but uh, so the arrest sequence, yeah, that was... That was uh, fun to do in jump cuts and, and also jump cuts tend to cover up um, inconsistencies in, in, uh, in um, continuity <laughs> also you can get away with a lot, a lot of stuff. Oh, the Spacey's VO is really funny uh, uh, because for months of course it was my voice over the movie and we just got so used to that and by the time we replaced my voice with, with Kevin's it was strange for a while to get used to even though he of course is far better than I was. I'm an awful actor but we were just used to it, and a lot of the voiceover did change. Um, I would uh, I would sometimes come up with my own 
voiceover uh, to to accommodate um, story points, and um, it would usually be the, the lame version of what Chris McCord then would rewrite for me that I would read. Um, there's uh, a scene that was coming up much later I'll talk about um, outside the, the police station after they've been rounded up was all constructed um, voiceover to basically uh, accommodate getting rid of a scene that followed and explaining uh, why they were going to do the taxi heist. I'm not often on the set, but I, I get the material and I can only imagine what happens on the set based upon the off-camera dialogue and yelling and screaming. And uh, this was apparently a late night. Um, everyone had gone through a lot already and uh, everyone was getting sort of giddy. And um, I found that the the bloopers, so to speak, of the, of the uh, actors just sort of uh, having fun and, and to, much to the dismay of uh, the, uh, the crew um, were far funnier than um, the actual scripted moments and so I just I just used a lot of moments where the actors lost it like right here you can see look at Keaton he's just starting to crack up and that's not not supposed to be that way but um, so they were sort of winging it and um, and it, it, so it, um, it matched together pretty well cutting wise I didn't know if, if by using the bloopers I'd be able to seamlessly put it together but it's but you don't really notice the inconsistencies in the in the continuity and uh, it just made the scene a lot more fun and made you warm up to these characters and <laughs> they had to say these lines, and I just, I think they just felt, they must have felt as actors kind of silly just standing up there in the lineup you know, after, you know, for so long saying, uh, saying what they had to say. This, um, this was where I really started experimenting with, um, and discovering how you can put l lines of dialogue from one character into another character's mouth, or even even using uh, different takes of a character's dialogue in the actual in a, in, from another take on, on, a, on a different visual of the same actor, and it's a way to control performances sometimes. Sometimes visually, performances is really good, um, but um, but the dialogue may not sound as good, and so I'll sometimes take um, dialogue from another take and slip it in uh, slip it in the mouth. Um, of a different visual take, and it's amazing how consistent the actors are in their timing. You can really, you can really fool, fool around a lot. Um, so here, I, you know, these jump cuts were a lot of fun to do, and, and uh, because we had a gargantuan amount of material here, I remember sitting in dailies with one of the producers, Robert Jones, and he's looking at me and he goes, "Oh my God, what are we gonna do?" <laughs> I said, "Don't worry, it's gonna be a lot shorter because um, these guys just went on and on and on and on. A lot of this was ad-libbed. Right there, you could say, see Benicio uh, started his saying, "I want my lawyer," but it, I used um, Hockney's voice, and um, that was the kind of fun stuff um, I, I tried and was so elated when something like that would work. Um, these wipes across this interrogation were, they never quite wiped the frame, which I found very frustrating. Um, if, if, if you watch the scene, you know, I basically, they were, it was covered in two, two shots of each, of each actor, uh, medium wide and close. And um, I, I wanted to sort of be able to cut in and out of, of, of the close-ups by using the wipes of, of uh, the interrogator walking by, who's Chris McCory. And um, unfortunately, this, the, the, the frame is so wide that the wipes never quite fill the frame, but it, but it ended up working fine. The, the, everyone, you, know, get, you get the gist of what I was trying to do. This, um, <laughs> you know, when I caught the dailies, I, I had no idea sometimes what, what Fenster was saying. It's funny now watching the movie years later and I completely understand everything he's saying, but um, then I had to sort of listen a few times and, uh, <laughs> to, to make sense of what, what was going on. And um, which was the sort of challenge of this entire movie is, is to make sense of, of what's going on and try to construct uh, 
try to know the story so well and ins and outs and 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 uh, to to editorially make sure things made sense after you saw the film and looked and went back again, and so it was really um, um, you know brain hemorrhage some hemorrhage sometimes to constantly keep track of what was going on in the story to uh, to make sure that I was I was making sense of things. This is one of those scenes which was is dangerous because I wanted to take the time, but I didn't want to lose the audience either. And um, but again, this was not a, a studio picture where everything's had to be flying by every five seconds. And so we just I wanted to sort of get into the, the characters, especially Keaton. Um, and I sort of kept him at a distance the entire scene and waited until this push-in that Brian is so fond of doing, as opposed to. Um, cutting to a close-up of him and match the other actors. I wanted to keep his space away from the other the other actors because he is, uh, you know, he's um, he, he's different from the rest of them right now, and he's trying to be clean. And and of course, that's why it's been blocked the way it is too, where he's across the room. So I, you know, when you see the way things are blocked, you want to make sure that you're keeping the director's intent alive uh, editorially as well, and not ruin it by just slamming into a close-up right away. I mean, this scene obviously. There's no need for music, and uh, and I wanted to sort of break from everything that that, ha that been happening, and my, the uh, the music sort of never stops up to this point. Well, up to the interrogation, really, because it's bringing you into the film and the, you know, the energy, and and um, and then it stops here just for a moment for us to get to know everyone. Forget him. Did you get to talk to your lawyer? <laughs> this whole thing was a shakedown. What well, makes you say that? How many times you been in the lineup? It's always you and four dummies. PD are paying homeless guys 10 bucks a head half the time. And there's no way they'd lie in five felons in the same row. No way. And what's, what, what's a voice line? Public defender could get you out of that one. So why the hell was I strip search? I was the feds. A truckload of guns get snagged. Customs comes down the top of NYPD. Yeah, this is, this is a scene that actually lost, you know, a lot of, not a lot of people, but I, I remember that um, the film at this point might be interpreted as, oh boy, this is going to be a slow movie because of this scene. But if you stick with it and listen to what they're saying and sort of relish in the characters, it, uh, it doesn't seem as long. But um, if people hung in there and got through this scene, which I actually enjoy, um, and I think in retrospect, if you know the movie now, it's an enjoyable scene. But when you're seeing the film for the first time, it may seem like, oh, boy, this is going to be one of those really independent movies where it's all in one room, which basically this movie is. It's in a, from, an, from an interrogation room, but we make all of these... Um, Departures, which is what made this film uh, successful in terms of being told from one room, but we kept it exciting by going into all these fantasies or, or, or real situations that Verbal was talking about. All right, now look. We've all been put out by this whole thing, right? So I figure we owe it to ourselves to salvage a little dignity. Now... Me and Fenster heard about a little job. Why don't you? You know, and of course, this is told from Verbal's point of view. So I had this uh, this theme come in for Verbal on the soprano saxophone, which really, if you, if you listen to the theme closely, is the main theme of the film. La da 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 da, and his theme goes ma da 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 da. And I did that throughout the movie, um, which is sort of a subliminal cohesiveness I try to create in the score. But um, but it's sort of a street street savvy kind of. Uh, theme for him, but there's also something more to it because it is based upon the theme of the movie. You're missing the point. No. You're missing the point. I don't want to hear anything from you. I don't care about your job. 
you know, to keep, to keep the, the, the story coming from his point of view, I, I had this sort of theme that then we revisited. Um, but because he's Kaiser Soze, in a sense, and controlling all the action, um, I felt that the actual theme of the movie should be his theme. Gone the high road. What is the world coming to? Fuck him. And that was how it started. The five of us being brought in on a trumped-up charge to be leaned on by halfwits. And uh, even in, in the taxi heist queue, which we'll come to later, it's that da 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 It's actually da 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 It's the same, it's the same theme. Was that these men would never break, never lie down, never bend over for anybody. Anybody. That was shot in Brian's backyard, by the way, as well. That's not. <laughs> we just needed a close-up of a body. Who are you? Agent Jack Bayer, FBI. How many dead? Fifteen so far. They're still pulling some bodies out of the water, though. Any survivors? I should talk a little more about music from time to time since I'm sort of caught up in the editing here. The um, There's a few themes in the film. Besides the, the overt theme for Kaiser Soze, there's sort of the mystery theme, um, which... which I touch upon very briefly here, which, um, and then it just goes into something that, that's functional when it will rise above the building. But this is sort of the, the introduction of um, the, uh, the mystery theme, I call it. And this was revisited in the hospital room um, when the Hungarian is talking and also whenever Kaiser Soze is talked about. Um, why, I, why I wanted to do that, I don't know. I just thought being too literal with the actual theme of the film would be too would be too uh, relentless. And so there's sort of the talking about Kaiser Soze theme and then and the actual Kaiser Soze theme himself. Um, this, uh, this is a pretty funny situation. The, um, we had a lot of second unit footage of uh, planes flying overhead for a scene later in the movie with the New York taxi heist when the drug dealer comes to town. Um, but I used it here early in the movie because there was no explanation how Kuyan was in New York one moment and suddenly he's at, in San Pedro. It was very confusing. So um, I wrote some dialogue um, of him, you know, being over the phone answering machine, uh, basically telling the audience he's flying to L.A. now. And um, that was not re rewritten by Chris. That was actually my brilliant dialogue. But um, then we, we put him through a telephone, uh, for, through a uh, television answering machine filter as if he was leaving a message for someone. And it's sort of a really corny idea, but it ends up working. No one really laughed at it, so we got away with it. These are the kind of scenes editors like where there's no cut. It's just one steady cam shot, so there's no editing involved. <laughs> no, but, um, but it is agonizing, too, sometimes, because you've got to make sure you, you, uh, you, you take the average of what the, the best performance is throughout that particular uh, take. Because you can't cut between takes if it's just one shot. This, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's real easy to, to see scenes like this and not think much of them, but I remember what a nightmare even little scenes like this were in the editing room because, of course, we were on a, a splicer and a flatbed, a Steenbeck, which is, uh, you know, editing on film with, a, with a, you know, film all over the room, my cat getting its claws caught in the sprocket holes and me sliming down the splicer on my finger getting blood throughout the movie. And, and I, I really wanted to have a, a good pace to it and also keep with the characters. And, and a simple little scene like this I'm actually really proud of because... Um, I'm cutting to the reaction shots, and uh, there's a great there's a great power in editing between two characters talking more than you would think, more than an action sequence or something like that. Um, it's just the way 
it's just the decision of when you cut to someone and and um, and pulling off uh, and making the performance even better than they than they necessarily were before. And um, anyways, it's just uh, difficult. It was difficult with uh, splicing tape and splicers on film. So uh, when you felt like the pasting was really good, it was even more rewarding back then. Because uh, on the electronic editing, of course, you can just keep tweaking effortlessly um, till the end of time, very very quickly. Um, so editing on film or starting editing on film really gave an editor the discipline to make a decision and, st and, and uh, think about what he's doing before he even starts. Um, I would actually approach a scene and think about in my mind how I would ideally like to envision the scene first before I even go into the landmine of what the footage is. And of course the footage will dictate sometimes what you have to do because of inconsistencies in, in, uh, in continuity and so forth. But at least you have a, a roadmap or a story you've written first as an editor and it gives you a big, uh, much much more clarity, I think, to, to go about that way. And you had to back then because you couldn't change things very easily. Um, Brian and I used to go to uh, movies and, and uh, be able to actually pinpoint most films that were cut on, on the electronic system versus film because most of the, the best editors did not know the electronic systems yet. And so you had a lot of techies and computer people uh, cutting film on the electronic medium where the best edited films were still being done on, on film. Of course, now it's different. Um, everything is, uh, is done. All the, all the best editors now are on the, on the electronic systems, but they have that s discipline, I think, of having started on film. This scene was a nightmare because uh, the guy is speaking another language. I had no idea what he was saying, so I had the... Um, the uh, interpreter uh, sent me faxes of, of lists uh, of, of, of the dialogue and translation. And um, I got most of it right. And knowing that, you know, 99.9% .9 of our audience doesn't, isn't speaking Hungarian, I, I sometimes uh, took some freedom in, in, uh, in the flow of the scene as opposed to exactly what he was saying. And um, I think some Hungarian audiences might have been cracking up when they watched the scene. This... Um, the DP on this movie, Tom Siegel, has talked about is he's a great DP, and um, but we, but um, certain things do happen, and uh, this was a horrible thing for Tom to have happened. Our, the first stuff that was shot in this movie was uh, m was this scene, uh, a lot of footage from this scene, or, or I should say footage in this room throughout the movie, and these shots of verbal and a couple other shots, um, there had been a mistake in the camera. I think one of the crew members had put they put the wrong gate in the in the film. Now you can't tell from the final product, but when we were watching dailies, here we are in the first first day of dailies, and we see on the on the left hand side of the screen where Verbal's entire almost uh, his hairline is right there was was cut off completely. You couldn't even see his ear. There was this black bar, and here we are in our first first day of dailies. Brian can get very you know excited very quickly, and. And he's yelling to the projection room that something's wrong. You know, get that get goddamn mat off the off the projector. There's something wrong. And as we were horrified to learn, um, it wasn't the projector. It was shot that way. So many scenes in this in this uh, many shots in that in that room had to be optically um, blown up and and um, to get that bar out of the way. And it was it was one of the continual nightmares getting opticals to be clean. They, they were very dirty all the time. We had to redo them and redo them and redo them. And um, you can't tell on DVD, but in the theater you could tell that the, the shots that had that problem on the left uh, with the mat incorrect um, were a little more blurry than the rest of the, uh, the shots in, in these scenes. But um, you would never know now. But it was a big, big dramatic moment as we first started <laughs> um, watching dailies. And Tom, of course, felt
horrible, but um, he since then has completely redeemed himself. I don't think he did it anyways. I think someone had put the wrong mat in. And again, these are the kind of scenes that are the most fun to cut because it's just between two people, and, and again, it, it just a frame or two can make the difference of, of, uh, of how a character comes across. And uh, I'm, I'm one to, to hardly ever go back to the same exact take. In other words, this take of Kuyon uh, takes us from one take of Spacey to another here, another take of Spacey. Then we go back to Kuyon, and we come back to Spacey again, and maybe be, you know, the, the seventh take, because each take has something special in it. Could be, could be down to just an eye blink that I, that I, that I, regist that I make a note of. And uh, so uh, I think there's an average of maybe 10 or 15 takes, and um, I probably use every single one of them. And on film, that was really hard to do. I had, you know, literally, I was a very sloppy film editor. I had film just strewn about over the, across the entire house, um, and uh, my assistant constantly picking up my film piles. But... Um, but it was quick to do it that way, just throw the film on the floor and get to the next, find the next piece. One, one of the fun things to do in a movie like this is, um, is to create sequences where if you go back and you realize what really is going on, um, early, when, 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 um, when Verbal is just sitting there um, bored in, in the room, just waiting for Kuyan to come in, um, you know, when you first start the movie, you just think he's just, you know, sitting there bored and, w and waiting for, for uh, what's going to happen. But in, in reality, he's thinking. And um, part of the, the brilliance of Spacey's performance is when you go back and look at the scene, you can realize he is thinking. And what I did is um, then used some footage we had of the bulletin board for later in the film for the finale um, and cut to it as if he was looking at the board and not just thinking but planning. And uh, so we didn't have a whole lot of, I really milked <laughs> blood from a rock or whatever the phrase is on that bulletin board because we didn't have a whole lot of footage. We just had these scattered panning shots back and forth and some close-ups and um, I didn't have much to spare but there was one kind of slowly moving uh, pan across the, the bulletin board and that was uh, a, a fun little moment uh, to, to put in. Um, no one, of course, would ever guess by showing that at this time of the film that he was reading the bulletin board and thinking of things to say, perhaps uh, in his interrogation, but it's just a little fun little touch. The cigarette box was also something that never never really um, came to fruition, but I also cut to, to that on the desk and is lingering on it because it was just something, just to give you the impression of something's up, but um, you're not sure what. One of the uh, the uh, decisions an editor has to make is, is, uh, is whether to... Uh, favor continuity or performance and sometimes it's an amalgam of both um, when when Keaton comes out of the uh, the lineup outside this police station and he's talking to Edie um, naturally it's uh, he's concentrating more on his performance than what he's doing with a cigarette and his cigarette is completely all over the place but um, so my decision was to favor his performance over exactly what his cigarette is doing but you can't completely uh, favor the performance because if if the cigarette is way out of whack, then even even the even the general audience is going to notice there's a mistake, um, which then suddenly the film seems sloppy or something. So it was uh, a real bitch to edit this scene when he's talking to Edie here because I wanted to keep the flow up and I wanted to keep him going in his best moments of his best takes. And and um, as I say, footage is often a, a landmine because just when you you want to cut just to the right moment of a performance, the cigarette's in the wrong place. But that's the whole, that's the whole thing about editing. And um, 
So that was a, a fun moment. I mean, people have noticed, you know, that the, the diehard, <laughs> diehards, uh, that a cigarette is often out of place. But, uh, you know, you watch, uh, Thelma Schumacher tends to do the same thing, even more overtly. She just says, screw continuity, I'm going for flow. Because I remember there was a scene in uh, Goodfellas where, I don't know what the scene was, but one guy had a phone in his hand one moment, the next moment he's, the, the phone's gone, and you cut to the guy and he's talking to him, he's got a cigar in his mouth, and then the next shot's gone. And so, but it's cut so quickly, you don't even, you don't even realize it. But performances are, are, what's, are what's primary. This scene uh, offered uh, a huge solution that we desperately needed. Um, the taxi heist that they end up doing was a plan that Verbal uh, came up with and confided in Keaton to tell him. And there's a scene that was shot at Edie's apartment where Keaton's living, um, where Verbal confides in him and tells him, look, I have this plan, we've got to do this thing. And unfortunately, uh, with the shooting schedule we had, and, or Brian had, they, he was only able to cover that scene in a master. And it wasn't the best scene in the film. In fact, it was, it was easily the worst, film, scene, worst scene in the entire movie. And we just could not keep that scene in the movie because uh, one great thing about Brian is if something's inadequate, he's okay with cutting the whole thing out. Um, but this was early on in the process. And I remember sitting there with a the production manager. She looks at me and she goes, well, how are you going to make this movie makes sense if you get rid of that scene. So I went home and I racked my brain, how in the world am I going to have them have planned this sequence, this, this taxi heist, and also get across that Keaton is living with Edie without having that scene in the film. So this scene, um, I wrote some of my cheesy dialogue explaining that, um, you know, Verbal had a plan and uh, he didn't know if, you know, he was going to go for it or not. And, and they had to tell Keaton, they needed Keaton's help to pull it off. And then, thank God, in the tail end of the scene, we cut out. Keaton slams Verbal up against the wall, and that's where I cut in to the very end of the scene that, we, that I was talking about that was cut out. And thank God, Verbal mentions, is this your place? And you realize that he's living with Edie. So we, we, we were able to get rid of the entire sequence. And um, here we go right in, slam into the uh, tail end of the scene that was cut out. This originally was... Uh, there's this large master shot in Edie's apartment. She offers uh, verbal a glass of water, and it's this really awkward thing because there was no coverage, and I really couldn't do anything with it, and it was just not a good scene. And then after she leaves to go get, to go get them a glass of water, Keaton drags verbal over to this hallway, and, um, and that's why I chose to cut into it and cut the rest of the sequence out. But sometimes it's really good there's a redundancy in dialogue because he really repeats a lot of things in this little snippet that um, in, or infers information he had told Keaton in the scene that was cut. And the other great thing about a movie like this is, it, is you, you not only take chances in cutting things in a frenetic way, but you also take chances in not cutting. And that's the fine line of, of not getting too excited uh, or masturbatory about your cutting because then you start to, you're, 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 you're selfishly, uh, pushing your craft over the good of the film. And here's a scene where, you know, there was no need for coverage whatsoever. Um, Brian did his classic, you know, uh, subliminal push-in uh, to keep the scene somewhat interesting. And also, it's um, the design work is, is done so well, you kind of, it keeps your, your eye interested. And musically, this was a fun moment in the movie for me, because and also another way of taking chances where there's... No huge moment that comes in score-wise, just this lone wood block, and it's when he starts talking about the heist and what they're going to do. What I did is I had uh, cut the scene to uh, a certain beat. I never do that. I never think about the music really when I'm cutting. Maybe subliminally I do, but in this particular scene I had to because the footage of the aircraft 
approaching the airport was so inconsistent and bad. What I did is I knew that I'd had to pull this off in jump cuts, and they'd have to mix, they'd have to match the score ultimately when I did the score. So by doing it to a certain click, I knew that whatever I was to write would end up matching perfectly. And of course, as you notice, we had a great shot of a 747 approaching and only a good shot of a L-1011 landing. <laughs> but this is something some people have noticed. And um, but hey, that's uh, now I understand why these things happen in films because uh, the shot of the 747 landing sucked. When we scored this, it was one of the the, the, the funnest moments when we were. Uh, scoring the movie. It just sounded really great with the cellos. I, I tend to always overscore when I do a film, which is uh, something Jerry Goldsmith said he always does, which is good, because then you have more music than you need. Knowing full well some things might be cut, but at least I'm covered. And most often uh, it's kept. Uh, this whole sequence I think was originally not supposed to be score, but I kept the score going just to keep it moving. But then when the actual heist occurs, it was far more gritty and realistic to have no music at all when it actually goes into this sequence. It would have been really cheesy to have score in this, in this, over this whole sequence. And those are decisions you have to make. You guys want Don't fucking put your fucking thing in the fucking cup! Stupid asshole! Watch the glass! Fucking move, motherfucker! You want a buckshot shampoo, chubby? This was from, I remember Brian complaining, this was a very difficult day for him because, again, I think the entire shooting schedule for this movie was 28 to 30 days, and this was a helter-skelter day with a camera going all over the place, but it worked out great, cutting things really quickly and uh, dubbing dialogue over, over sequences that, uh, over actors that normally, that necessarily weren't saying what they were saying. There's no fucking money! Give me the money! Give me the fucking money! Do it! Give him the money! Give me the fucking money! Give him the money! Hurry up! You know the fuck I am? You people know the fuck I am? Fuck! What are you doing now, jerk off? Paul Bartel here is just hilarious. I mean, what a brilliant <laughs> casting thing for a drug dealer. It was, uh, it was just fun to, to do this scene. I tend to love using wipes, and Brian knows that, so he, he is sure to make sure a lot of things wipe during frame. And again, it is sometimes the obvious thing to do, so it's a fine line of, of being obvious about using wipes in a frivolous way at all, or, or just having it be, add seamlessness to the scene. And that there was a lot of great wipes in that little moment there, in the post-taxi post heist moment. Ah, you wouldn't know it from this scene, but uh, I, for some reason, always remember cutting this scene. It was a really super, super hot day. It was probably, I lived in the valley, it was 110 degrees. We had, I had an, a room air conditioner sticking out of a window and plastic draped down half the room to keep it cool. And um, I had been editing for hours, and then I had to deal with this scene um, where there was just... Uh, a lot of inconsistencies, which you wouldn't know now. I just, I just remembered it was just very difficult for me to, to uh, keep moving. And it's been so long now, I can't remember exactly what my problems were, but I do remember it was uh, one of those scenes where I just had to get up and, you know, and uh, walk around the house for a minute and come back and, and just keep trying. Again, I, I can't remember exactly what the continuity problems were. I think it was, it was this trio situation here, but uh, again, I don't remember.
but these close-ups of Keaton allowed me to draw I draw on them uh, as I did for many scenes in the movie um, later in the film in the montage where Kuyan is interrogating verbal and um, so I used a lot of a lot of footage from this scene uh, in that later montage of, of Keaton standing there looking looking evil which he didn't in this scene but uh, in context context he would This scene of you know, there's a lot. I mean, this is just, this the normal thing in films. Um, this scene actually was much longer. It started out um, a secretary at a desk, and then it dollied by, and people were walking through. It ended up on on Keaton sitting there with Verbal in the in the office, and it was just like, you know. So those are the things I just hacked right out immediately. And of course, you know, um, I know Brian was like, "What was this great, you know, panning shot and introduce the office?" And I go, "Who cares? You know, we have exterior of the building. We know they're sitting in the office. Just let's just, you know, let's just get to it." And of course, it doesn't take much because Brian is really good at understanding logic, the logic of the situation, very, very quickly. And um, so it wasn't, it wasn't a, a battle at all. I'm gonna miss the plan. She'll understand. This is a little nice moment between the two of them. There's just enough between the two of them in this film without seeming nauseating. Here, this was a reposition shot. I remember there was a big black bar on the left. This is why Kuyan's high is cut off because we had to blow up the shot so much to get rid of the black bar on the left. You want to wait outside? You guys wanted to know what happened after the lineup, I'm telling you. Come on, Verbal. But uh, you know, had it been a studio film with, uh, you know, not final cut by the director, I'm sure that the love affair between Keaton and, and uh, Edie would have been played way up and, um, and really taken the meat away from what essentially is a guy's movie. <laughs> but but um, it's, it's, I think it's just, just a tad, just, just enough of their, of their affair. I was a cop for four years. Who else would know the taxi service better? The job had his name written all over it. But Edie had him all turned around. Let me tell you something. I know Dean Keaton. I've been investigating him for the past three years. The guy I know is a cold-blooded bastard. IAD indicted him on three counts of murder. Chaz Palminteri had a lot of tongue-twisting dialogue in this movie, and uh, where he had to fast, talk fast, and just keep rattling things off. And um, um, I, of course. Um, exploited that to at his expense in the blooper reel, but he, he did a great job. It's just um, uh, it was uh, not in this particular scene, but other scenes. It was it was uh, quite uh, an editorial experience to to splice together the 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 the, 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 the greatest moments of his uh, of his um, diatribes he was going on. Can't prove the best part either. Dean Keaton was dead. <laughs> did you know that? He died in a fire two years ago during an event. Space is great here. It's uh, just, you know, in all these scenes, uh, just thinking and calculating the whole time. There's, there's uh, one scene later on where he sort of even gives a little bit of a smirk before Kuyon sits into frame and we rack to back to Kuyon and, and he erases his smile immediately. And it's amazing, you know, I mean, it's not amazing. The audience has no idea what's going on, but it's, you know, in, in, in retrospect, it's such a giveaway that he's hiding something. But, 
Um, it was, it's a little great. It's, it's just great little moments like that. Agent there. Let's get the show on the road. Agent yeah, wait, just wait, hold on. What we discussed. There are far too many people. Look, look, doctor, doctor, look. I promise we'll be out of here before he blows his Porsche line. Okay. I have a noon meeting there. Yeah, okay. Wait, okay. Agent okay. Look, five minutes. Look, everyone, just calm down. All right. I want you to ask this man about the shootout in the harbor. Uh, he says they were buying dope. We know. He doesn't know what they were buying, but not dope. Uh, people. What? He needs guarantees. What are you talking about? Guarantees. He says his life's in danger. Uh, he saw the devil, looked him in the eye. I'm on my way. No, no, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Ask him to tell him what he told me uh, about the devil. Who's the devil? Okay. Again, here's a. Uh, when he begins talking, this is the of course uh, the talk about Kaiser Soze music, which just you know basically heightens your 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 interest level and intrigue. And, and there's this, there's this otherworldly character, and it's not evil music. Um, at least I think it's in this scene. Um, it's not evil music, which would be the, the the common thing to do. It's it's very magical and mysterious music, um, but more magical really, which which often which sort of in a strange way adds more, uh, pulls you in more and and uh, makes it more mythical as opposed to just straight sinister music which which would be um, sort of the surface level thing to do as opposed to digging underneath and I think um, uh, the fact that uh, the music does that if I do say so myself is sort of uh, it, it really heightens the interest factor especially when um, uh, the, the long scene when, when uh, Pete Postlethwaite comes in and talks to them in the pool hall that music basically has its fruition there, and it keeps the scene really um, fascinating. I think to the to the um, to the audience. You think he's your friend? You tell me he's dead. So be it. I want to be sure he's dead before I go back to New York. He wasn't behind anything. It was the lawyer. What lawyer? What lawyer, Verbal? You know, back when I was in that barbershop quartet in Skokie, Illinois. You don't think I know you held out? That was a strange cut, but Brian, uh, I really, you know, sometimes. I believe in continually coming in, in closer to characters, closer, 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 and don't break the intensity of them, them popping back out and, and, and sort of ruining the intensity. But I do remember Brian insisted that I cut back the wide shot as he moved in, when uh, when he when he uh, sort of uh, flicked his arm there, and um, but I got back right back in again, so it worked out fine. There was a lawyer. And it's, it's situations, situations like that where you get to know the people you work with where I know Brian likes to do that now. And so uh, and if we had a very similar situation in our first feature where the same exact thing happened. We were in tight with two characters and all of a sudden one starts getting strangled and um, he had done a wide shot pushing in very close and I had not used it. And um, I should have learned from that situation that uh, he likes doing that. But now, you know, I know. And those, those are the sort of... Uh, Experiences you build so so that by the time you're doing your third or fourth movie you, you have a real shorthand and you know the director so well You know what he's gonna hate and and and, and like and, and then again I I like to come up with new things too to try to convince the director to use 
and so we create even new new moments for us to talk about later. Not bad. Complain. How's it going, Fister? Don't need to open it, right? It must be Keaton. Redfoot, Dean Keaton, Todd Hockney, and Verbal Kins. Verbal, man with the plan, huh? You guys interested in any more work? We're always looking for extra work. We're on vacation. Well, that's too bad. I got a ton of work, and I don't have any good people. Not like you guys. One of the main things that I was concerned about in this movie is so many things are talked about that I was really unsure if the audience is really listening. And if they're not listening, the film was going to be a disaster. And um, I remember having a, a screening for, for the first time with an audience, and we didn't really do any test screenings. We, we basically had a, a screening after the film was negative cut to see what uh, people's feedback would be. And um, I remember that uh, in the scene where Pete possibly comes in and talks to them and talks about the, uh, the, the truckload of, of guns, um, that um, there had been a joke early in the film made about that, and as soon as um, Hockney reacted to that, the whole audience laughed. And that was a setup from the, the early um, lockup scene in the film. And uh, it was the, well, the payoff to that, actually. And this was like three quarters of the way through the film now. And when the audience laughed at that moment, I realized, wow, they are really listening. And um, they may actually not only get the film, but actually like it, because I was really convinced that uh, no one would, would be listening or understanding what in the world was going on in this film. It was, it was hard enough for me to keep straight, let alone think the audience was going to follow it. So I, was, I, I, I can't tell anyone how elated I was when we were watching with the audience and they were actually reacting to information that had been laid out in earlier scenes. Big, not Bigfoot, Redfoot sort of has his own theme, which is what you hear in these sequences. It's sort of a dobro. Um, using a strange sense with some weird synthesizer sounds under it. And, um, I don't know, it just keeps things moving and, uh, and uh, creates a sort of aura for his One character. Job. <laughs> One job? That's a good one, Keaton. <laughs> Keaton fought it as best he could, but a man can't change what he is. He can convince anyone he's someone else, but never himself. It took one day with McManus nagging, and we went back to work. This this scene again, another example of uh, uh, short shooting schedule, and and not as much footage as you'd want. So. Um, as with a lot of scenes, I had to create the illusion of there being a lot more shots than there really were by, by just cutting in, into them. And, um, you know, some shots cover a lot of ground, but you cut them up into like 50 different pieces and it seems like th there's a ton more coverage. And especially if the director is, is changing the image sizes of shots in one shot all the time, if you cut those shots up, it's going to seem like there's a ton of footage. And it keeps the, 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 uh, the energy level up. Um, I, I thought, sure, when these two guys were shot up against the van, we were going to get just roasted and, and people do laugh but the the reason we can get away with it in this movie is because everything that's being that's being flashbacked is that ne not necessarily true anyway and so goofy things can happen and, and they're completely forgiven by the audience because this all may be made up anyway so uh, when he does this double shot of them against the van it's it's uh, incredibly cheesy <laughs> you know especially with the way the blood 
the blood streaks down, but um, I don't know, you buy it. And even even people laugh. They were completely with the movie. They didn't laugh in a discuss, disgusted way about the film. They laughed because they were with the movie. But just hand over the case. Hand over the fucking case. And musically, it helped too. Um, this was. Uh, this is an exception to the rule I talked about in the taxi heist. You really have to make a judgment call, and um, this particular scene, I wanted just laden with music, especially in the, in the active section preceding this part. Um, the music is a cacophony and wild, and it just, it just adds adds uh, energy to the uh, the action that not necessarily was there, but it just makes you feel like things are a lot more frenetic and chaotic um, with the music continually um, just swirling away. This is something I tend to love doing, just linger on shots, um, hearing the audio from what you're going to go into, and sort of keeps things moving, but also makes things interesting. You hear this sound coming from outside this van, you know, what, what is that? Until you cut inside and you realize what was just going on. And of course, it keeps an economy going in what you're watching, but it still gets the same point across without wasting time. This scene's been talked about a lot, I'm sure, because, again, this was a sort of a blooper I used, but it wasn't a very funny one necessarily. Um, when when um, Redfoot flicks his uh, cigarette into over to uh, um, Stephen Baldwin, that uh, it was not supposed to be that way. The, 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 the uh, burning ash actually went right into his eye. And, um, of course, I used it because it was great, but uh, it was definitely not supposed to be that way. He was just supposed to flick it down. And uh, I remember uh, Peter Green was horrified uh, in, in his footage when he did that. He was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. But uh, those are the magic moments that you just, as long as no one really got hurt, that you can use. <laughs> Call me last night. He says he wants to meet you guys. Okay. We'll meet him. I'll call you. Good. Do that. No problem. I don't Let's like go. it. I don't like it. Wait a minute. One more thing, tough guy. Any more surprises, and I'm gonna kill you. You're such a tough guy, McManus. But do me a favor, right? Get the fuck off fuck. my dick. No. no. You know, it seems like this too, where you have extras uh, brandishing guns and so forth. It can be really cheesy. So you gotta really make sure that you just use the right amount of them because it can bring down the intelligence intelligence of a film really quickly so I, I kept the uh, the extras in the scene to a bare minimum <laughs> fuck you so this lawyer kobayashi came from redfoot right why leave this out when you talk to the da dave someone to see you Jack, been looking all over for you. Still after that coke that took a walk out of that bloodbath in the harbor yesterday? Yeah. Well, you can stop looking. There was no coke. I've been in L.A. County talking to a guy they pulled out of a drain pipe in San Pedro yesterday after the shootout. I came to this morning. This uh, guy pulled out of a drain pipe he's talking about was actually a scene we deleted from the film, which we'll talk about when if we show this on the DVD. Um, the guy pulled out of a drain pipe was a scene we actually filmed but the dummy of Arturo Marquez um, 
who they found dead was so bad looking um, that um, we had to cut the scene out. And so it just talked about, unfortunately, again, people, most people were listening enough to know that, that the, his body had been discovered without actually showing the scene. Um, the scene was pretty cheesy anyway, so it was it behooved the film not to have it in the movie. But I did use pieces of it in edit in uh, montage sequences. The dummy was so expensive, we sort of you know felt compelled to use it in some way. For an hour and a half, what we need to do is find Redfoot Keith and get the hell out of here now. What we need to do is think. This was fun to set up, just having this this person staring at them and and using wipes. Um, Again, I, I think I think Brian knew that I, I would do this technique, so we covered him in three image sizes and had him wipe frame or two image sizes. And this is, uh, as I may have touched on before, this is a, a very, very, very long scene, but um, and I think that the music is um, one of the elements that really keeps it going. Um, of course, it doesn't start in yet, but when you, when you start getting into the, into the crux of what's going on. It's that theme that's sort of been laid out for the audience subliminally. You sort of wean them on this uh, this talking about Kaiser Soze mystery music um, or mythical, magical music. And then when it starts coming in again, I think the audience feels like, oh, now we may, we be, may come down to some answers here. And so I think the music itself uh, keeps, keeps one engaged. I work for Kaiser Soze. It was a very difficult movie because of a short shooting schedule and so many characters to cover. Um, and editorially, I had uh, a lot of choices to what to do in because when there were scenes like this where there's, just, where, where, um, there's so many characters, if they were all covered, sometimes they couldn't, they couldn't cover all the characters in time. So uh, that was painful sometimes in, in the editing room. 1981, Mr. Keaton, you participated in the hijacking of a truck in Buffalo, New York. The cargo was raw steel, steel which belonged to Mr. Soze and which was destined for Pakistan to be used in a nuclear reactor. There's also a fine line in the, in the success of a score simply based upon how it's mixed. I mean, you can, you can write a great score, but it's all for naught if it's not mixed correctly in the film. It may be too loud or maybe too soft. And um, that's a great advantage I had in this being the editor. Um, and being at the dub and controlling the, the sound of the, of the, uh, the level of the music. Uh, a lot of uh, a new, tech, a new uh, trend in mixing films today is that dialogue mixers are doubling as uh, music mixers as well. And uh, there, there are a few that are good at it, but in most cases it really has caused a lot of scores to not be mixed uh, effectively. Um, we did have a dedicated music mixer on this film, and I would sit there with him and, and make sure that the gap between the dialogue and the music levels was very tight. Because when you go to a theater, often the music gets absorbed. If it's, mixed, if it's mixed very subtly in the dub stage, you're hearing it just fine. But then you go to a theater and you've got 400 people in a room and it's not necessarily played very loud, the, the film isn't, that you miss the music. And therefore you're missing uh, uh, a, a great emotional moment in a film um, or a mysterious one or something to keep you engaged and the film just tends to slow down without that, that score remaining present and um, I think the music mixer did a great job on this oh, which is why no one should watch any film on a mono TV set <laughs> one of the big jokes in the film as I'm sure has been talked about and is also touched upon in the blooper reel is, is um, everyone's uh, 
idea of what Kaiser Soze's name was. Was it Soze or Sosa or or Sousa? Or, and, and so we have a lot of footage of actors saying it in different ways. And, and Pete here, I think he had uh, mentioned um, his name in maybe four different incarnations. And so it was... Uh, it was uh, an editorial thing to get him to, to, to keep the takes where he's consistent in the way he mentions Mr. Soza. And I even think we let one go. It kind of says Soza. Um, and I, I might have manipulated his voice on a couple. I can't really, really remember. But he has an awful lot of dialogue here. But um, he was a very, very uh, prepared actor. And, and uh, there wasn't a huge amount of manipulation to do with him, except for that one, except for that uh, Soza. Soza. Souza thing, which actually used to be Kaiser Sume in the original script for so long. So when we actually shot the movie, it was just weird to hear Soze, because at the, at the in the eleventh hour they had to change the name because um, Chris, the writer, revealed that one of his past bosses' name was Sume, and we were afraid of him suing Chris or something for being portrayed as such an evil character. So um, literally, I think a couple of days before the shot, they came up with Soze, which is interesting because it actually means verbal in some language. I think it's, I think Hungarian, and that's why I think when Hungarian audiences watched, watched the hospital scenes with the Hungarian yelling out Kaiser Soze, basically uh, the whole plot was given away right away for them. And this is really fun music to do here. It's just sort of, there's something really classic about this, <laughs> this briefcase and their names, and it, I just had a blast scoring this. Also, uh, when the briefcase opens, we we uh, made sure that the sound of the briefcase was extremely loud to sort of startle everyone. And those are the little fun things to, to do sound-wise. And then uh, when Keaton looks at uh, his photos showing Edie, it sort of briefly goes into the theme of the film again, but in a more sort of romantic, um, tender way, sort of reflecting his his uh, love for Edie and in a life that he could have had. I got my whole life in here, everything I've ever done since I was 18. That's really amazing, and this scene has probably gone on for, I don't know how long, a few minutes, and it's still very engaging. But it's, it'd be a funny experiment to do just to have a scene this length with absolutely no music in it, and I, I guarantee it would seem agonizing, because it felt that way in the editing room before I, um, you know, came up with something to put in here. Part of the art of film scoring, too, which is, I don't know, in my opinion, largely fell, fallen by the wayside in recent years, is telling a story musically, where you can actually take the music away from the film and hear a story being told. And it takes a tremendous amount of planning um, and mapping out of what you're going to do with the score before you start writing. Um, I think uh, post schedules are so short now, and composers stack themselves up with so many films to do that a lot of uh, thought isn't put into necessarily these days um, telling a story that's that's well thought out from beginning to end and where you're going with the score. And it's like a good symphony. You'll hear themes that are 
uh, touched upon in a symphony, but they come to their full fruition in the end in the end of the symphony because symphonies most of them do tell a story. Or it depends on the era, of course, of the symphony, but. Um, and a good film score should hold back too, and just and just lay groundwork and lay hints, and then have um, sort of the the uh, the fruition of those ideas come come full throttle later in the film. And and but in order to do that and plan that out correctly, you've got to really sit down and watch the entire film, and then sort of in your in in, in latently think about where you're going with the score ultimately. Running dope, they say. They come to his home. Um, this was a really interesting scene. It's one of the few, few uh, days I actually was on the set because um, we have this whole thing about me not being there, so I don't know about the geography, so I can break rules without realizing I'm breaking rules in the editing room. Um, but this was done in the step frame process in camera. Brian, which I agree with, doesn't believe in doing effects like this in post-production because it has this cheesy sort of... Uh, cable movie look to it but if you do it actually if you plan ahead for this stuff and it's not done as a as an afterthought but as a forethought as you're shooting it has a really much more organic and artistic look to it and this does i believe this was done and the camera was under cranked and then um was step printed uh <clears throat> so i was given a bunch of footage that was very strange looking and um i had to boy if, if memory serves correctly the uh, process was expensive for a low-budget movie like this, so I had to really uh, go through all the footage before the process had been done to it and choose what I was probably going to use editorially. So uh, a lot of planning had to be in my mind's eyes to what I was going to use ultimately without, without having to do the process to all of the footage that was shot for the scene. So uh, that, was a, that was a difficult scene to cut, which you wouldn't know on the surface because... Uh, I didn't really, I really had to choose ahead of time what footage I was going to use. More jump cuts there. <laughs> Just to get us out of that scene, of that shot. You know, part of editing too is, you know, if you don't know about editing, is, is keeping those pregnant pauses, is deciding how long they last. I mean, I could have had space to answer that question right away, but no, instead there's a moment where he thinks, and sometimes uh, an actor Wheeler will have not done that, and, and so a big part of the editor's job is really creating performances that may or may not have been there. Spacey didn't take much manipulation at all. He did do those, he did do those moments, but there's many times with different characters and actors where you want to create pregnant pauses, um, or sometimes they are pausing way too much and, and eating up the scenery where you, you just cut all the pauses out. So um, it's a very, very powerful thing, editing, in terms of shaping performances. Unless it's a scene like this where there's no, no coverage and it's just, uh, you know, you, this, is, this is where you choose the best take overall because there's no coverage in a scene like this. And, and there shouldn't be. It's a very, it's a decision of the director just to sort of move in. And it's an, it's, it's an economic thing as well. There's no time. It's, it's you weigh out the importance of the scene and whether it's worth getting coverage or not. A couple of years. A lot of guys equate him to that reporter on The Incredible Hulk. You've heard of him? Out on the street? Yeah. Yeah, a few times, you know, outside stuff. Somebody uh, working for a guy, worked for a guy, got some money from uh, Kaiser Soze. One of my philosophies with editing, and of course every philosophy has exceptions and can be broken depending on the scene, is to keep all the characters in the room for the audience. In other words, I never uh, like to spend too much time on one character without seeing the reaction. And the eyes seem to always tell me when to cut to the other character. And it's also what's exactly being said by one character, uh, which dictates when to cut to the other listening. And this keeps everyone 
So that's why you never told the DA. On the screen, so to speak, um, without seeming uh, contrived. Um, it's it's a, again, it's a fine line between cutting to characters too much and um, staying away from them. But um, it sort of is a philosophy of mine. It, it 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 keeps films interesting by by bouncing reactions off of of, of different characters and, and keeping the, all the characters in the room visually. And of course, a lot of those actions are, are reactions are manufactured. They could be from some other take. There was um, I don't know if this was it or not, but. Um, there was a cue I actually cut out of the movie. It might have been this scene. I know it was in this setting um, where, you know, a good music mixer has the guts to turn to you as a composer and say, you know, um, what do you think about cutting out this cue? And, I, and, of course, your first reaction is, what are you saying? You know, but um, it really was this really short transitionary cue. I think it, it opened this scene. And it was literally like, you know, 10 seconds long or, or maybe 15 seconds. And it felt so much like TV because it was so short. And short, short little connector cues is something I really normally don't like doing anyway. So it didn't take much of an argument for him to get rid of it. He just ran it by me. And I think in the back of my head, I'd been thinking that anyway. So the moment he sort of mentioned it to me, it wasn't, didn't take much for me to say, yeah, fine, get rid of it. What happened next? He woke up the next morning and Fenster was gone. He couldn't handle the idea of slumming for Soze. He left us a note wishing us good luck and took a chunk of the money we'd scraped together. Then what? Well, McManus is furious. He was talking about tracking him down and ripping his heart out, all sorts of shit. That night we got the call. What call? Kobayashi told us where we could find Fenster. This was a very hard scene because of focus issues. <laughs> um, it was a you know, low-light situation, and, and I'm sure rushed, as most of the film was shot in a, in a, in a frenzy. Um, and I remember sitting there watching dailies. This is one of the earlier scenes that I was watching with a friend of mine, because no, no one ended up going to dailies after a while. It was just me in a, in a room all by myself, and um, sort of <laughs> looking at my life flash before my eyes, wondering how in the world am I going to do this, because there was so many focus drift issues on this. and. Um, and it was all shot from one direction, basically. Um, so the cutting was a little difficult. I don't know about you, Peg Leg, but I can run. I got no problem with that. Kobayashi doesn't seem to have a problem with it either. You run, and we're going to be taking a hole for you. You got that? This ain't my boy we're burying. I don't know anybody. So fuck you. He was my partner for five years. We did more jobs, and I saw more money than you can ever count. So fuck you! Because now it's payback! It's not payback! It's for a cause. You want payback, you want to run, I don't care. I'm not doing this for Fenster. I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing this for me. I'm going to finish this thing. This Kobayashi bastard is not going to stand on me. Of course, this is the uh, a great moment, the roundness of the cave matching the roundness of the coffee cup. Yesterday killed Fenster. Nobody would run? Kind of. You can make a see. It fits really nicely. And I remember doing this optical a million times. Keaton wouldn't have it. It was too far-fetched for him. 
And because we were on film, of course, you couldn't render the opticals the way, like on a, on a computer system now, you can, you can basically do a dissolve and see exactly, pretty much exactly how it's going to look. But on film, of course, all you have is a grease pencil to, uh, give, to show that there's going to be dissolve there. And so when you finally get the optical back and look at it in the theater, um, it may not be exactly what you had planned. So you have to keep redoing it and redoing it and redoing it until it's right. This is another example of a, of a quote-unquote action sequence done on a, on a shoestring budget where there wasn't a whole lot of coverage. Um, I milked, pretty much milked the elevator shaft um, a lot, <laughs> sort of keep cutting back and forth. But if you notice, there's really not a whole lot of different things I'm cutting to. It's basically between the same two uh, shots, moving in with these guys and the elevator, um, and, and being in upstairs with, with uh, Steven. I was really happy with this cue in the movie. Um, one of my favorite moments is when we cut outside at the end of the sequence and go over the buildings. It's this huge, glorious moment, and it sounded so great. And I remember being in the dub. Um, you know, uh, I know this as being a director. You can you can suddenly have these flashes of insecurity, and Brian suddenly had a, a worry about it and was like, "I'm all oh my god, it doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work." And thank God, Chris McCory was sitting there in the mix at that moment and said, "No." I think it's great, and I was like, thank God Chris was here at that moment because the score was in jeopardy uh, of being axed at that moment in the mix. I don't know what we would have replaced it with, but um, uh, it's one of my favorite parts of the, of, the, of the score. Coming up right here. We didn't really have a lot of money, of course, on this movie, and, and as the film was taking shape, it was starting to look like a much bigger movie than I had ever envisioned, and, um, and uh, so I began starting getting very worried about the music, because here this is starting to look like a major movie, and, and I'm going to like be a laughingstock if the music doesn't sound really, uh, you know, uh, in, in the same league as the film, and so it was a huge amount of pressure to to basically, with with no budget, get the sound we got from the score. And uh, I remember early on in the process, when this film was still in the uh, uh, very rudimentary beginnings, uh, in a script stage, that uh, one of the producers, Robert Jones, flew out from London to meet with me, and he's saying, so, okay, you haven't edited the film in about a year and a half, and I go, yeah, that's right, because you've never really scored a film for real. You did Ryan's first movie with a synthesizer, and I go, yeah, that's right, and you can do this, right? Um, um, right, uh-huh. <laughs> I remember going home, and, and uh, that's when the heart palpitations were beginning, and I was terrified the whole time that I could pull this off, because really, I had never done it at this level before, and uh, you're, you say with a gulp, oh, well, yeah, sure, I can do this, no problem. But uh, Brian sort of had them uh, in a situation where they had to agree because I was in the deal as being both the editor and the composer because of what we saw happen on our first feature, which was a great symbiosis between the cutting and the scoring. So they were sort of, um, they had no choice, but the, I could tell their nervousness, and their nervousness didn't really uh, help me out at all because it made me just as nervous. Oh, yeah, and in the end, you know, I think they, they realized that everything was going to be just fine, but... Um, at least editorially, of course, they hadn't heard the music yet, so then I, I would do my synthesized renderings of the score, but back then I had really bad equipment, and um, my renderings would sound pretty crapola. And um, I do remember, though, a big, a major moment for me was when we showed 
the film to some executives at a big theater at uh, Paramount. We rented the uh, theater there. And I brought a, uh, a cassette tape, <laughs> of all things, um, of the, uh, my synthesized rendering of the main theme and played it for the approval of everyone. And um, that's a very scary moment when, you, when the theme upon which you're passionate about basing the entire film is up for judgment. And if they don't like it, you're like, what are you going to do? It it's can be an extremely crushing experience if no one likes it. But um, they liked it. And uh, so I was, I was sort of home free in my mind. Um, writing the score based upon that that style of music. Although, again, the comment was with the executives uh, was like, well, we were expecting you know a lot more something a lot more hip, and um, you know which was uh, exactly what we didn't want to do and fall into that trap. This is a scene where, as an editor, I was really I was kind of initially disappointed because there was no coverage on any of the actors except for this one shot of the four of them in a lineup. And that was done for time, of course, and, um, but, you know, it ends up working fine. I'll make myself clear. And besides, it's, um, it's, it's all about Keaton here anyway with, with Edie, so it, make, it makes sense. I love the shot of the reflection in the mirror to sort of wrap up the sequence and and just scored the hell out of it. And again, you know, a lot of the obvious thing to be to do with a score would be to be really evil here because it's an evil person walking in. But no, it's like it's even more bizarre and more unsettling if you do something a little against the grain where it's pensive and strange, but or, or or romantic even over an image of of a bad person, and that just makes it just adds elegance to the film, and to me more believability is in in terms of taking it away from being a caricature of what you expect and instead being being the real thing. Brings me to sunny point number two. Even if one of us gets through and jacks the boat, we still get nothing. What if we wait for the money? Ten more men at least. Look, in my opinion, it can't be done. Anybody goes in there is not coming out alive. I'm gonna wait for the money. Me too. Did you hear what he just said? If I'm going in, I want to cut. Brian's instant. <laughs> you can tell every shot is always moving in, which is a great thing. It uh, keeps you involved. In, in addition to the editing, it's sort of a two-fold process, the editing and the moving in. Uh, it's really a great thing. I call it the slow creep. And what it also is very economic because in one shot, if no time, if you have no time to shoot a wide shot, a medium shot, and a close up, and do three different setups, all you do is one shot, but just keep moving in, and and inevitably the the design of a scene editorially is always to move in throughout the course of a scene anyway, and so again it makes it makes the the director look good that there's a hell of a lot more footage than there really is, because your the editor is creating. Um, this evolution of a scene by 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 using different image sizes that are actually in one the course of one take. Starting here was where I started telling a story that was not necessarily in the script. Um, this whole entire boat sequence, especially inside the boat, which I'll talk about later, was something that was extremely nebulous in the script always. And um, I do remember that in the script as well, there was a hell of a lot more extravagant things that occurred that um, Brian had to make the decision to cut out because of uh, budgetary and time reasons. Um, 
So uh, there was somewhat of a plan uh, shooting all of this stuff in the exterior, but when we got inside the boat, there's this whole process of, of events that occur, especially when they're looking around for the drugs and searching, that um, was absolutely not scripted whatsoever. And um, the, uh, the uh, second unit guy had to go and uh, just film a bunch of stuff in the boat, but we, he wasn't actually sure what he was filming. And, and um, Brian was, of course, busy doing the main unit stuff outside the boat, so he uh, sent Ken, one of the producers and second unit person in there, to, uh, to, do, these, to do all this footage. Um, so I remember being at the editing in the editing room and getting a, a phone call from Ken saying, "Okay, I'm shooting all this stuff inside that bubble. What am I supposed to be shooting?" And I go, "Well, you ever seen Star Trek II?" And he goes, uh, "No." And I go, "Well, when they go aboard this space station, Nebula One, it's just a series of shots of doors opening, exposing people's faces, and and then you know, cut to Kirk, and then cut to to Bones in another place walking in some stairs, and it cuts to someone else. And I'm sure they had, didn't have a really big set, but it made it feel as if they were lurking about this entire space station. And I said, "Do the same thing, just." give me some shots of doors opening, faces walking past camera. And um, so what Ken had done is, uh, and one of the classic examples of that is that he did a really good job on is when Keaton opens this bulkhead and comes in, he's all red, and then walks past camera. But what he had done is continued to follow the actors throughout the entire location of where he was shooting. So, for instance, if he was in an engine room or something, he would, ha he would have to walk down the stairs. The camera would pan with him to go to the other part of the room and then out the door. Well, then I would take that one shot and create four different locations with it. In other words, I would you know cut from one, that shot to another actor doing another location, then cut back to the same setup again, but, but it's another part of the room. So it would feel like a completely different part of the ship. So I was able to sort of organize all these shots into this sort of mini story I told of them lurking about inside the ship. Um, through basically maybe three locations that, that uh, Ken had to work with and making it seem as if um, they were all over the ship in, in about 17 different locations. It's, it's rare that you get the opportunity to cut in sequence because they're not shooting out of sequence and you're desperately, as the editor, trying to keep up with them as they're shooting. And um, so you do have to have the, the bigger picture. And a film like this is, uh, like I said, a brain hemorrhage to try to figure out, okay, I'm sh uh, here's the scene that they shot, which is uh, way out of sequence. Where am I in the story? What's going on? So, um, But then you get your editor's assembly together and you sit back and watch and make sure everything's making sense. This was... Um, a great scene for me to do. It was a f I remember just having a blast editing this entire sequence from the moment we, we come to this setting of the, uh, the, the shipyard and just building the tension slowly. Right. How you doing? With uh, edit editorially. And the music here too, uh, just gives it this sort of ongoing tension. And, uh, and the, it was just, it looked really good, and, uh, and it's, it's for some reason this scene just inspired me on, the, on, the, on, the, on the, my little flatbed as I'm looking at the screen. This was the, the bomb subplot that began. This part of the bomb plot we used, of course, because it, it got them into the ship. But again, the other part that we cut out was when Keaton actually lays the bomb in the, in the ship and instead just inf inferred that it was the gas that blew up the ship accidentally. And there is a scene, in one of the lost scenes I in the DVD is a very, very small moment where um, I'd cut out early, but um, 
uh, we can see Keaton actually laying the bomb in the engine room. And it's always great to hold off musically there. Instead of do the obvious thing, which is build, 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 build with the music, you can instead come down. You have this odd moment where you have this lull before the storm, and then boom. And that's the, the great thing about storytelling is peaks and valleys, which Brian and I are always talking about, where film, a lot of films today are, are all climax and no foreplay, as one critic put it. I wish I'd coined that phrase, but I didn't. But that is the problem. Everything is just for its supreme moment instead of holding back and creating these, these, these peaks and valleys to tell a good story and make things exciting for the audience. And it's not as if when you have a quiet moment, the audience is going to leap out of the theater. Um, although these films still make hundreds of millions of dollars, so it tells, it tells uh, Hollywood that they keep making movies like that. But then a moment like this comes along, and as long as the story is good enough, it's all about story, then no matter, you know, if you take these moments of pause, the audience is going to be even more involved in the film. It was also a fun sequence to do because it was a break from the, all the conversational areas of the movie where it was like, I felt like was, I was editing an action film, so it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. <coughs> One of the only cuts we made in the film after showing it to the audience was in this sequence where, um, a very small cut where, where uh, Baldwin is get going down a, a, a hatch and uh, sort of cut a couple shots out. The audience just felt like this sequence went on just a little bit too long, but that was pretty much the only cut we made. Which is the great thing about making a movie for yourselves as opposed to the, uh, the uh, general consensus scorecards that, that an audience fills out, and this way films are a little more bold and take more chances because you're not trying to make every single person happy. This, this is a sequence we completely got away with. It's like, it's not like Kaiser Soze is from another planet or dimension, but uh, you, know, you know what's going on here, but for some reason you buy it because it's just that sense of wonder. It's like, he's, he's around, his presence is there, and even though it's this, this uh, surrealistic moment, it's, it, it, it works to, to keep the audience totally engaged. This shot was uh, pretty much the only shot I had of Case of Spacey throughout the entire this entire boat sequence, and so I pretty much milked it. Um, we had a lot of takes of it just moving in constantly, so it enabled me to get away from the the action and, and cut back to Spacey a lot in terms of his reactions, and it allowed me to get to different parts of the boat without having to worry about too much continuity. Why didn't you run? Froze up. We actually put a gunshot inside that door sound <laughs> to sort of startle Case Spacey and the uh, and the audience. Especially after what he's just been talking about, which is gun battles. Boy came across a body on the beach this morning, thrown clear when the boat burned, shot twice in the head. Two guys from the bureau just identified him. What else? His name was Arturo Marquez, a petty smuggler from Argentina. He was arrested last year in New York for trafficking. He escapes to California. They pick him up in Long Beach. They're setting up extradition. 
He escapes again. Now, get this. Edie Finneran's brought in to advise on the proceedings. Kobayashi. New York faxed me a copy of his testimony. It was a rat. Yeah, a big fucking rat. Arturo was very opposed to returning to prison. So much so that he named close to 50 people. Guess who he named in the finale? Kaiser Sose. And again, he comes, uh, Kuyan comes in here, and, and we're about to cut back to Verbal's story. And um, well, actually, now it's Kuyan's story telling him what he feels is, is going on. And, you know, the obvious choice would be to return to full score as we slam cut into this. But instead, it's better just to not have score for a moment and feel like you're in the reality of the situation because score really is there for emotional reasons um, or if, the, if you feel the scene is lacking in something. But it's great, it's great to sort of hold back and just be there with the characters and hear the sounds of the boats, boat and so forth and, and the sounds in the ship that are haunting Arturo Marquez. Here's a shot that uh, was uh, Keaton walking in one in a, in a room. Of course, the camera had panned with him and gone to another section, and then into another section. I cut it up into a million pieces, and and uh, that's the Star Trek II shot. <laughs> Instead, it's not William Shatner; it's Keaton. Um, but all this stuff really worked out well. That's Brian saying, "Stay quiet." I, it was originally my voice. I was very proud of what I'd done, but he wanted to have his cameo, so my stay quiet and um, shut up got replaced by Brian <laughs> I'm telling you it's Kaiser Sose but I got the all breathing behind the ropes anytime there's uh, uh, verbal behind the, the ropes staring at the scene um, it's me me breathing because we didn't have time to uh, do Kevin's ADR and do his breathing there this is more uh, great second unit shots by, by Ken. He's able to sort of, again, create this sort of mysterious situation going on in the boat. Um, it just sort of makes you creeped out. And is that Kaiser Soze or is it not Kaiser Soze, the door closing? I always search for when I was organizing all these scenes together, which could have gone in any order. I always, of course, look for dark areas so I can link shots together in a sort of interesting way. One is this, where it moves into blackness. And the next shot is another dark shot where the door opens almost as if it was from that other shot preceding it. That's the same shot as, as the longer shot before in the sequence of Keaton opening the door, but a close-up instead. And again, for all we know, it's a different door in another place in the ship. That was a great reaction shot of Arturo Marquez that wasn't really planned, but we sort of put in the sound of that, that uh, Baldwin had kicked something and, and must be in close proximity to Arturo Marquez so that he reacts to the sound. And this is the scene where, uh, after they speak, that Keaton originally uh, laid a bomb in, in, the, in the engine room. But um, I cut out just before he did that to change the storyline. I don't know. There's no coke. What? You heard and it was obviously there was no engine sounds going on in this room, and it was so great that, for a change, actors really were yelling at the top of their lungs, 
sometimes in you bar scenes and so forth, the actors are just are not yelling, and they put in the music, and they have to you know, the, the source music of, of the rock music in the background of a bar, and, and it's they have to play it so low because the actors didn't yell um, over 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 the, like a nightclub scene, and so uh, it's really great when they are keep and they keep in mind that um, that they're in a loud room, and so then we can really pump up those engine sounds. tell here I was kind of running out of second unit shot so I get that same <laughs> hallway shot again very similar to the other one but you know you just feel like you're, you're just in another area once again and then upcoming is the is the big moment of the score um, you've heard little moments of Kaiser Soze's theme peppered throughout the movie um, which is based upon the theme of the movie loosely and um, here it has its big final moment because Kaiser Soze has got his man and this is the part I've been, I was holding off on for the whole movie until it has its big moment of glory right here. You know, not knowing what I was going to do for score, I just kept this long and just didn't edit it down and kept this entire shot knowing that this was going to be a big moment score-wise. What exactly it was, I wasn't sure, but I knew it was going to be a huge moment for score. thing. Again, these these sections of no dialogue are often points where the editor has a lot of freedom to sort of tell a story because there's just a ton of footage shot, or sometimes not enough footage, but um, and with these kind of things are, are often loosely scripted as to exactly what's happening, especially when they're changed when they shoot. Um, normally Keaton was supposed to have been hit by a giant crane, you know, obviously that was extremely cost prohibitive, so he was just shot by the mysterious stranger. And that's what you say in your statement. You saw a man in a suit with a slim build. Wait a minute. I don't have a minute. Now, were you saying you saw Kaiser Sose? You told the DA you didn't know who it was. I know there was dope on that boat. Stop stalling, Verbal. You know what I'm getting at. Get out of my face. You know what I'm getting at. I got immunity. I don't have to take that shit. You know what you know what I'm getting at, Verbal. Yes, you do. The truth. Try to tell me you saw I love overlapping dialogue in a scene, which can be problematic sometimes in the editing room because you have different takes of when the actors aren't told to not overlap each other's shot. But, you know, many times you just say, screw that rule, because it really inhibits the actor, and you just deal with it post later. And uh, fortunately, it worked out. It was even harder to be on mag track and being spliced together sound tape and try to make these interruptions cool and smooth and, and dub in other lines to make the seem seamless and all these interruptions, but it worked out fine. I tend, I tend not to... 
if, if it's a really intense scene, I tend not to inhibit the actors and say, okay, don't overlap his line because it really you lose you lose a lot of energy. And you can, with the miracle of editing and now digital technology you can, and dubbing, you can really fix it later in post. Again, here's uh, the moment where we're build up to uh, Kaiser Sose's theme once again since he's out and about in the open and doing his thing. And if you listen closely, you can hear my breathing when we're behind these ropes. Here's the new plot. Instead of a bomb having been set, uh, you know, he uh, we repeat this sequence of Brian's foot in my hand. Well, my hand is missing from the sequence <laughs> where the cigarette just drops on the gas and blows up the ship, which we thought was a lot lot simpler. It's really a repeat um, of this of the opening sequence, of course, and we actually did some reprinting to make sure the shots were exactly the same. Now this sequence is an interesting one coming up in that uh, the DP had done an amazing job following Kuyan around the table and whipping up and catching him just at the right moment and, and it was a constant just uh, inter constant interrogation of Kuyan and once in a while tilting down the to, to um, verbal. But um, this was uh, this was late in the late in the making of the film where Brian came over late one night. He goes, "There's got to be something more we can do," and he really uh, pushed me to do something with this. And so I thought about it and realized I had tons of footage of um, things he was possibly talking about throughout the movie. And it was a later it was a later scene in the film and shot later in the film. So I I knew the rest of the footage of the, of the movie really well. And so I uh, cut up all of Tom's beautiful camera work, but um, it really made this um, an engaging sequence, and yet still something was wrong because I had chosen not to score it. And uh, most directors don't... Well, that's a great moment right there where I sort of stumbled across the fact that I could dub in Kuyan's lips over Arturo. Same there with Spacey. It um, was really great discoveries. Um, doing crazy things like that. Um, uh, so I, I really was, was proud of the sequence and, and um, thought I had saved, saved the, the film in this regard, but then there was something missing and Brian insisted I score it. I really had not planned to. Um, and he kind of said, just do something like a like boom, 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 boom. Of course, as a composer, you're not really sure what that's supposed to mean. Uh, I interpret that, interpreted that as being sort of, you know, bass pizzicato on, on the basses. And, and so I did this sort of ongoing building thing and um, it just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing and until the end of the scene and it really made the whole sequence just uh, this it's really quite a masterful sequence um, the reason behind this entire sequence was the fact that it played out not only was it not dynamic enough but the point of the sequence was that was to was to throw the audience off that perhaps maybe it is Keaton all along maybe he is Kaiser Soze. How do we get the audience to believe that? And and unfortunately, um, uh, that didn't come across just in dialogue. And so we needed the support of visuals. And so um, that's why I was decided upon to create an editorial montage out of the thing, which ends up sort of ends up being our trademark on every movie we do together. But um, so it uh, was the agonizing process of going through the entire film and, and telling a new 
and telling us a mini story editorially um, with with, um, with the footage of Keaton uh, adding suspicion on him. And, and, you know, we had some really great shots of Keaton, you know, moving into him really closely and looking evil. And um, it really did work for a lot of the audience. They really were were supposing that perhaps Keaton was the guy. You had to hide when you first heard the police cause. You said you heard the shot before the fire, but you didn't see him die. I knew him. He would never. He programmed you. He programmed you to tell us just what he wanted you to. He knew we were close. You said it yourself. Where was the political pressure coming from? Why were you being protected? It was Keaton. Immunity was your reward. But why me? Why not Fester and McManus or Hockney? Why me? I'm stupid. I'm a cripple. Why me? Because you're a cripple, Virgil. Because you're stupid. Because you're weaker than them. <laughs> if he's dead, if what you say is true, then it won't matter. In terms of timing, uh, we had um, Spacey say a lot more in this scene as, as the scene progressed on. and. You know, and you get the feeling, you, talk, you try to put yourself in the audience's place and that, okay, this is probably just enough, so we, we should probably cut out some of the things he's saying. He goes on and on about, um, I forgot exactly what he goes on and on about, but it was pretty superfluous, and um, it was a little too whiny, and so we cut out a lot of um, dialogue, in the, not a lot, but a, a good chunk out of the end of the scene, which I have uh, on the um, DVD. story. But I know Keaton, and someone is out there pulling strings for you. Stay here and let us protect you. No way. I'm not bait. I post today. You posted 20 minutes ago. Captain Leo wants you out of here ASAP, unless you turn states. I'll take my chances. Thank you. If someone wants to get you, they're going to get you out there. Turn states evidence. You might never see trial. Maybe so. But I'm not a rat, Agent Kuyan. This was dubbed fucking cops. Fucking cops. I mean, not ADR, but it was taken from another take. I remember doing that <laughs> just to make it a little better because we liked the visual but didn't like the way he said it. Brian's probably pointed out that's his mother there. So in that pupil, we put my mother as a doctor <laughs> in that movie. <laughs> one watch, gold. One cigarette lighter, gold. One pack of cigarettes, thank you. You still got nothing, Dave. I know what I wanted to know about Keaton. She's nothing. No matter. He'll have to know how close And this was one of the cross-cutting things that I did, so to sort of get us out of that room um, and cross-cut between him leaving and, and them talking in the room just to keep it keep it interesting and carry Kuyan the dialogue over these shots, which is something that's always, again, economical and, and interesting to do, as opposed to just having this scene, then having the scene of him leaving, and then back to them again. It would just be too agonizing. Man, you're a slob. Yeah, but it all has a system, Dave. It all makes sense when you look at it, right? You gotta, like, stand back from it, you know? You wanna see a real horror show? See my garage. 
so this becomes sort of the crowning moment, at least in the editing room for me, um, where uh, this is, you know, the big escape and the big, re the big realization and catharsis. And um, I didn't have a whole lot to use in the bulletin board, but um, and even after this entire sequence through the end of the film was cut, it still had many problems. For one thing, there was I didn't have any voiceovers at all, so that I went in and, and on my mag tracks, and I, only, I could only listen to two tracks at the same time, but I needed to imagine the third overlapping dialogue. Is I took all the dialogue from throughout the movie and created an audio montage as well, which added, which really added to the visuals that we were seeing, and um, it sort of really made everything come together thematically and idea-wise, and just made things really bizarre. But then the other problem was musically, um, at least not in this section, but in, in the, um, the getaway sequence of uh, verbal, I had tempt the music in with like getaway music and, and very tense music. And the, the scene was a, a disaster for us. And we thought, okay, here's the final scene of the movie and it's a complete utter disaster. It was basically because the music was wrong. And um, because obviously this is not uh, it is a getaway, but there's something very magical and, and mysterious about this guy. So, um, after this realization is when I went into this action music right here, and it just did not work. Well, I remember surprising Brian. We had a, sc a screening that we were going to show just ourselves and a couple people that we knew, and I had stumbled across um, Saint-Saëns' Carnival, Carnival of the Animals, which is a very sort of like mysterious and magical piece of music and it's basically what I ended up sort of um, ripping off for the end of the movie and it completely made the sequence because this became this magical eerie sequence or ironic sequence as opposed to dun 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 dun, dun he's getting away and it made a moment like this when his foot straightens out just this just this just this uh really great moment. No somebody with power. There was somebody who was capable Not of tracking us Kaiser New York for the You think Kaiser a guy like that is close to getting caught and sticks his head out? You get I mean, instead we have a euphoric moment here when he's getting away as opposed to a horrible moment. And uh, it's hard to explain exactly what it does to you, but I go by feeling a lot, and if I'm freaked out by something I'm listening to in a good way, then I feel like everyone else is going to be too. And and um, a lot of the dialogue too, in combination with the music, it just had this symbiosis, which was just really, it just worked. Thank God, because here, here was the end of the movie, and it really wasn't working at all. And also, I cut up a lot more than I had originally planned. Um, the cross-cutting between the fax machine and him being outside and the feet, and uh, huge, a huge amount of planning out to pull this off um, editorially. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was... And this, uh, this final shot is one that'll always, <laughs> that'll always drive me crazy because it's so brilliant and it wasn't my idea. <laughs> and uh, I remember, um, you know, we had ended the movie and cut to black and there was just something not final there wasn't enough of a button on it and I remember Brian was bugged by it too and he called me from his car phone as I'm sitting there at the flatbed and he goes he goes this is probably a dumb idea don't no, just forget it forget it. I'm not even mention it I go what is it and he goes oh well what would just cut to that shot of him you know saying and, and you know using his hand and saying then he was gone and I said oh my god that's brilliant 
That's so brilliant. I mean, I had the immediate, an immediate reaction that that was brilliant. And um, he's like, you sure? You sure? And I go, it's brilliant. Believe me. So, you know, we, we, we have a, a good enough relationship where we have no ego involved. It's like, if it's great, I'll say, you know what? It's great, but goddamn, I wish I had thought of that, you know? And um, so it created a really terrific button for the end of the film. And then, and then with the... Uh, with the music slamming that as well, and the way it was timed out, it just, um, boy, it just, it's just one of those moments that just makes everyone clap. And I think without it, um, the impact wouldn't have nearly been, been there. When I watched this movie, I just realized how this, this couldn't be done today um, very well. It's, um, we broke so many rules, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that um, Brian had this unprecedented Final Cut deal where we basically could do what we wanted to do. It didn't have to answer to a test screening audience and and, num and score numbers and so forth. We just we the bottom line is if, if this film makes us happy, then we hope you like it too. And that's and I think that's um, uh, the best films are born from that because you have more of a point of view of the filmmakers as opposed to watering down uh, the film for the least common denominator. And um, even from the, the way the music was, I mean, again, that this was uh, this, the main statement of this film is: look, this is a more elegant effort. This is. Um, you know, this is uh, a romantic um, version of a crime film and um, with some taste. And, and I think the score basically confirmed that from frame one and, and basically saying, look, this is something different. And, and uh, basically that's, um, I, I don't know, I don't think um, a lot of this could be done today, um, especially with the way um, films are even further manipulated by, by test scores and test screenings. And they, they always have been, but not to the ridiculous degree that they are today. Um, there was a lot more chances taken back then. And, and it wasn't a very expensive movie, so I mean, the, the great thing about doing a low-budget movie is you can take a lot of chances and not worry about a, a huge financial impact it may have because there's no, there's no a supposition that the film's gonna make a ton of money anyway. So uh, the loss, the perceived loss by taking a chance isn't so great. And that's what uh, we had the advantage of doing in this. The, uh, <laughs> the edited on film credit at the end uh, is a funny story. I, because so many films were starting to be edited on the electronic medium, which, which, and those were the worst edited films at that time. And uh, such a hardship editing a film like this on an on a old flatbed Steenbeck that I wanted to put a joke at the end saying, uh, edited, edited on a piece of shit Steenbeck, but instead I just changed the, the uh, title to edited on film as a sort of like, um, so there uh, to the, all those films that were being done electronically. And the funny thing is, is um, Tim Robbins had seen the film, or, or his editor, or someone, um, for, um, for, for Dead Man Walking, and uh, they edited on film as well, and so they put edited on a piece of crap Steenbeck at the end of their title, so they kind of like um, built off of my joke. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.